Hi friends, I'm Tim Villegas from the Maryland Coalition for Inclusive Education, and you are listening to Think Inclusive, our podcast that brings you conversations about inclusive education and what inclusion looks like in the real world. It's good to be back with weekly episodes of Think Inclusive. Last week, we talked with Dr. Shelley Moore about the five P's of inclusive education with a focus on what inclusion looks like in secondary schools. Make sure to check out episode one of season 11 after you hear from our amazing guest. Andra Tisha Fritzgerald is the founder and lead consultant of Building Blocks of Brilliance educational consulting firm. As an international speaker, Fritzgerald exhibits an audacious perseverance that calls organizations to evolve into inclusive, anti-racist safe zones for all learners. With over 20 years in education, she has served as a teacher, curriculum specialist, administrator, and director. Her award-winning book, Anti-Racism and Universal Design for Learning, Building Expressways to Success, has been a catalyst for UDL to ensure safety and radical inclusion in every learning community. For this episode, Andra Tisha discusses the importance of creating a culture of honor in educational spaces as opposed to a culture of power. She explains that codes of power are rules created by those in power that limit the access and opportunities of marginalized individuals. In contrast, codes of honor empower all members of the learning community and invite their voices and experiences to the table. Fritzgerald emphasizes the need for intentional efforts to break down the limitations of the culture of power and create inclusive environments where every learner is seen, heard, and supported. Thank you so much to our incredible sponsor for this week's episode, Changing Perspectives, an international nonprofit that partners with schools and districts to create inclusive and equitable learning communities for all students. They offer customizable teacher trainings, family workshops, and curriculum resources. They've already helped over 300,000 students, 12,000 teachers, and 500 schools. Visit their website at changingperspectivesnow.org to learn more and schedule a free meeting. Oh, I am so, so excited for you to hear our conversation today. And just for a little bit of context, Andra Tisha and I recorded this interview on June 30th, 2023, the day that the Supreme Court issued its biggest rulings of the year. So just know that the weight of those decisions influenced our conversation. Make sure you hang around till the end of the interview with Andra Tisha, where we both answer this episode's slightly morbid mystery question. And for free time this week, we have our very own Carolyn Teagland, CEO of MCIE. Carolyn and I talk about working with partners who are in states and districts where there has been an effort to stamp out language like diversity, equity, and inclusion. After a short break, my interview with Andratisha Fritzgerald. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Andrew Tisha Fitzgerald, welcome to the Think Inclusive podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Tim. I just want to address the elephant in the room that we are recording on a not so uh, great day news wise. So I think both of I think if you hear a little bit of uh, in our tone, that's probably where it's coming from. So I just want to acknowledge that. However, this plays out this conversation, but Andrew Tisha, I. I had the pleasure of listening and watching your keynote at the 20, 2023 Supporting Inclusive Practices Conference, um, Inclusion from the Ground Up. And it was fantastic. I, this is the, the first time I heard you speak. So it was amazing. Uh, so thank, thank you, you for thank you for your thoughts. And you talked specifically about the distinction between a culture of power and a culture of honor. Uh, and I know our audience doesn't have a context for that. So I was wondering if you could just share what you mean by those terms, because I thought they were really fascinating. Oh, well, um, I'm so excited to speak with you today. And I know that there is, um, as you said, the elephant in the room that will no doubt make its way into the conversation. And when we think about uh, codes of power uh, versus codes of honor, codes of power was um, a term from an article written by Lisa Delpit in 1988. I think what breaks my heart about um, what I'm about to share with you about these codes of power is she talked about issues of power that are enacted in the classroom. And I wished that this 1988 article was out of date, that it was no longer contextual, that it didn't make sense for educational spaces, but it still does. And so um, from this article about codes of power, um, I propose uh, creating intentionally codes of honor. And so codes of power are where issues of power are enacted in the classroom, where those who have the power create these rules that uh, those who are not a part of the culture of power may or may not have access to. Um, If you are a participant in the culture of power, then you know the rules and it makes it easier for you to navigate, not necessarily to gain power, but easier to navigate. 
And um, those who have the power will be less likely or less aware to acknowledge that this power or this culture of power even exists. And with the codes of honor that I propose, we have to be intentional. We have to put in effort and time to break down the limitations of the culture of power and create a culture of honor. How do we do that? We are purposeful and intentional in uh, explicitly naming where the codes of power place limits on those who are marginalized historically and traditionally. Um, We have to empower members of every learning community daily in our supports and choices and structures. Uh, We have to make an effort to make sure that every member of the learning community is invited into positions of power, which means that in a culture of power, I make the decision for you. I decide what the consequence is and you just have to deal with it because we've made the rules. Everyone plays by the rules, whether you know them or not. We hold you accountable to those rules. In a culture of honor, we co-create the environment that we are holding ourselves inter-accountable to. There's a humility that even as a teacher, I take myself out of that power position and allow you to make decisions for yourself that govern your best outcomes. Of course, I facilitate and support and create structures, but there is an element of co-design that invites your voice powerfully to the table, but not just your voice, your experiences what you know for sure, what you struggle with is all welcome in a culture of honor because I don't want you to have to decompartmentalize the most important aspects of yourself to be the picture of success because of my power. I want you to bring everything about who you are and what you want and what you need into this space because I honor you. And together with that honor, we co-create a learning community where learning is safe, welcoming, inclusive. Those are the only kinds of environments where the brain uh, can actually learn anyway. Where do these codes of power even come from? Is it just, this is historically how we've run schools. You have the one teacher and you have your 20-ish students and then whatever the teacher says, that's it. There's no more discussion. I mean, like where, where does it all come from? When I speak to teachers, um, professors, um, designers of learning experiences around the country, um, the number one area of pushback that I get when I introduce this culture of honor as a way of shaping instructional experiences is, what if I'm not taken seriously as a teacher? What if they um, take over? What if they don't Um, What if they take advantage of these structures or being able to make choices? And when you unravel all of those questions and those what ifs, there is fear Mm. in a culture of power. There is a comfort in knowing that what I say won't be challenged. If it is, if it's a nail that sticks up, I'll hammer it down. I will be in control. I will be in charge. I will be the authority. Power that operates that way is comfortable because what they like and what they need and what they say is the moving factor in that learning environment, not what the students need, not what breeds learning, but what breeds their comfort. And so fear is not a good driver. It's a great indicator to let you know, hey, there's something going on, something to look into, something to lean into, but it is not a good driver. And we're in educational spaces where fear of the students that we serve have been a driver 
And when those students have been historically and traditionally marginalized, so our Black students, our Brown students, our students with disabilities, students who identify as LBGTQ, there is a fear of who you serve. And when you are afraid of your students, you can't truly teach them. There is no transmission of content where fear is a barrier. And instead of addressing that barrier of fear, it's a lot more comfortable to just say it's the students or they haven't done this because it maintains my power. But in a culture of honor, it requires humility by those who are charged with the responsibility of creating the learning environment. And that humility say we can create this interaccountability that allows us to co-design so that each of us has what we need. Usually when I'm thinking about um, honor and power together, I think people can hear the difference when on the first day of school, when we are sharing our responsibilities, whether it's a syllabus or whether it's uh, those little sign-off forms that we have in K-12 that we say, take home, have your parents sign off. There's a very different environment when I say, hey, it's the first day. Here's what can happen here. Here's what can't happen. This is what I'll do if you don't. Here are the rules. You either follow them or you must go. That's power. But if on the first day when you come in, I say, hey, there are some things that I would love in order to teach. There are some things that each of you will need in order to learn. Let's co-create a set of, of expectations that we can hold each other accountable to for the entire school year. If we need to revisit them, we will. But we need to make sure that what, what happens when I step on your toes? What happens when you step on mine? How can we create some expectations together to make sure that we are community? That's honor. Honor and power uh, sound very different and they play out very different in creating an environment that lets the brain know you are safe here. You are welcome here. You are wanted here and you don't have to be perfect to exist here and become the picture of success for yourself and for others. Uh, that's the kind of class I want to be in. Yes, please. <laughs> I don't know about you. <laughs> yes, please. I really um, I took a course. um last summer in a subject area that um, was not very familiar to me. And it was one of the first times that I've been in a classroom that was not universally designed or really from that education viewpoint in a very long time. And what I found is that when I have the tools as an expert learner, meaning I know what I need, I know how I learn best, um, that even if the environment is not created for me, and I was very aware that this course is created as what higher education loves to brag about as a weed out course, um, that I can universally design the course for myself to ensure that I'm successful um, on the, the end. Even if the course was not universally designed, then I had to put in a lot of extra time and effort to make sure that my outcome was successful. But I knew how to do that anytime I'm working with students whether they are in ninth grade English or uh, teachers who are further in their education, I help them to learn more about how you learn so that you can be your best advocate in any learning space. So even if the classroom is not universally designed, we hope that it is. But even if it's not, and many of our students, especially black and brown students, will go into places that are designed for their failure and not for their success. But if I know what I need, then no one can take that away from me. When we talk about expert learners, those are learners who are empowered with information, with resources, but also to know how to ask for support and where to find it, even if the course is not engineered for you to succeed. 
So how do we, how do we get expert learners then? <laughs> you know, like this sounds, it sounds like these are the kinds of, of learners we want, especially in higher education, but you know, we have to train them or we have to support them to get to that place, right? We have to train and support them while we push the system to become what learners need. Mm. Um, I believe we have to work on both sides. And so with universal design for learning, and you know that UDL is a framework that takes thirty over 30 years of brain research to protect uh, how humans learn. So instead of having students walk into the room and expecting self-regulation. We design our courses to build the self-regulation muscle to have students know uh, what helps me to focus. Do I notice what happens in my body when I'm not focused? Am I able to bring myself back quickly? And if we are not designing courses for learners to begin to think about who they are as a learner, and we only design courses for them to think about who they're not as a learner, um, then the failure is on the instructor. And so I love that Universal Design for Learning has this research on how humans learn. We have to be diligent to match that with an anti-racist approach to, to protect the humanity of those humans who are learning with us. And so um, anti-racist strategies require humility, require us to look at the barriers, to look at racism and ableism as a barrier to learning and instruction. And when we are more aware of our biases, more aware of the um, lack of diversity in our scholarship, uh, more aware of where we can set up structures that will lead to success for students, it cannot be cookie cutter because every term, even every day, the students who are in front of us, the learners who are with us are different. That means that the barriers are going to be different, that what they need in order to learn and grow from our content is going to be different. I cannot prescribe to you what you need, but I can certainly learn more about how my design impacts your success and your outcome. That is an inter-accountable exchange that has to happen in learning. And I find that the Universal Design for Learning Framework invites us into that conversation when we acknowledge this dynamic of power and intentionally move towards a culture of honor. So you've written a book called Anti-Racism and Universal Design for Learning, uh, Building Expressways to Success. Yes. How, uh, you touched a little bit on it, but you know, how are anti-racism and UDL connected? When we look at that body of research in Universal Design for Learning, um, the three principles of UDL are multiple means of engagement which really means that there's more than one way to experience support and that we design our, our lessons and our classrooms around helping learners to know what they need to keep focus, to keep motivation, to find purpose, even in things that are not necessarily interesting to them. So how can I take what I know about myself and apply that in a classroom setting to keep myself moving toward the goal? So Universal Design for Learning ask us to, as instructors, to think about how to design those aspects into the course. So recruiting interest, that means that what you're interested in has value here. Now, from an anti-racist lens, what that means is even if our cultures are different or our backgrounds are different or our interests are different, my interests are not supreme 
to the learners in the classroom. And so what I have to do is be intentional about mining for what is of value to you, what is important to you, and allowing that to be brought into the classroom in a way that enhances your learning, but also enhances mine. That means that I'm constantly learning how to reach you, how to bend the curriculum toward you intentionally and purposefully. And who you are matters here to your focus, to your motivation, to your purpose. That means I need to know a little bit about your outcomes. Where do you want to go? My book, um, Anti-Racism and Universal Design for Learning, has a subtitle, Building Expressways to Success. And in this book, I encourage teachers not to determine the outcome for students, not to choose the destination for them, but kind of like driver's ed, once you learn the skills to drive for yourself, then that means that you choose the destination. You know how to get there. You know what you need. You know what comforts are important to you, what music you'll select. You get to decide when you're in the driver's seat, but without the skills to do the driving, you can't get to your destination. I don't want to choose the destination for you, but I want my instruction to be powerful enough for you to learn so much more about yourself as a learner that as you take and apply this content, these connections, this motivation and purpose to your overall goal, you'll have a why in mind and a purpose that I come alongside to make sure you get to where you need to go. So uh, multiple yeah. means of um, engagement mm-hmm. really pushes us to focus on the student and the barriers that the student identifies, as well as the ones that we can perceive along with them to help them figure out how do we decrease these barriers? How does my design eliminate the barriers to make sure you're on the road to where you want to go, not where society thinks you should be, not where someone else has decided for you, but for where you truly want to go. And every learner, whether they're in pre-K or GED or higher education, they know where they want to go. That may change, that may evolve as they learn themselves. It is our responsibility to yield to the learner and engage them in ways that will push them toward their future. I love that. I love that analogy. I'm a former educator, former special education teacher. I worked in uh, public schools for 16 years. In my teacher ed program, you had a mix of authoritative and authoritarian styles of what you should be portraying. And I feel like in the special ed education kind of field and sphere, I was most often instructed, never let them see you cry. (laughs) Never let them, you know, never let them uh, get away with all of these things. And it was much more that you were the ultimate authority in the classroom and you had to make Mm -hmm. sure that your students, you know, that's why, I mean, that's why we talk about classroom management, right? Mm -hmm. Behavior management. We are managing the students' behaviors. But the longer and longer I was in education, the more I realized that dynamic wasn't wasn't really positive. It was, you know, fear-based, right? Which is what you talked about. Mm -hmm. Um, Why is building relationships with your learners, figuring out what they like, what what their passions are, figuring out where way, where they want to go. Why is that really important? It honors them as human beings to say that there is something of value that you bring just because you're present. When you come into the room, I think we there has been some school of education, some schools of thought that see students as empty vessels waiting to be filled. I believe that our learners 
come to us filled, full, fully human. Uh, and it's up to us to design and experience, to engineer solutions alongside of them that really brings those cultural funds of knowledge, the things that they know, um, that helps parents to connect powerfully with the curriculum in ways that they can see those connections at home. I remember uh, my son had a an assignment and the assignment was, it was just a cutout of a right angle. Find as many right angles in your home as you possibly can. And so here we are all around the house with this right angle and it is just a cutout, but it gave us a chance to say, I know what a right angle is. Of course, you know, we knew, uh, but for my son to say, I get it. I know what a right angle is. I know where to find them. And if they're all over the house, I get the fact that there's something important about them. We can connect powerfully to experiences and backgrounds and culture and humanity if we are intentional about doing so. That means that we have to be diligent to place ourselves in the position of learner. And just as we expect our students to come in and place themselves in the position of learner for content, we also have to reassure them and create systems and structures that say, you are also teacher here. You are also expert here. And when we stop trying to be the expert on others, I am not an expert on who you are or how you're experiencing today or what you went through yet last night or how you feel in this moment. What I am an expert on is myself and helping to design this experience so that your expertise and my expertise is not in battle, but that we can honor one another, even on days when we aren't getting along the best, that we have a way to honor one another, that I invite your brilliance into this space, that I believe that you are competent and you show me those competent ways and we'll find ways to blast any barriers that are holding you back from moving forward in your learning, in your leading, in your teaching, and you're growing. There's a destination that you have that you want to get to. And even if you haven't shared that with me fully, we have to first have a relationship so that we understand the roles that we hold in each other's lives and how we are expecting each other to grow together this year. The role that is not just most important between teacher and student, but building a community so that students get to see other students as experts on themselves, as well as on the content area. And we can share that space of expertise as a community, but it doesn't happen by accident. It happens with intentionality and effort. That means we have to be cognizant of the barriers that exist. We have to be honest about, um, history and uh, marginalization. We have to be honest about where systems have not been built for all students. And inclusion is not an option, is not something that you opt in or opt out, but that every student not just feels included, but is actually included in decision-making, in policies, in classroom organization, in setting up the expectations and navigating how they attack assignments or which assignments are most salient to them. This is what universal design for learning is, but we have to attach that universal design for learning to an intentional effort to be honest about what schools have been 
for particularly students of color, for students with disabilities, for anyone who has not been the norm in any way, shape or form for disrupting normative language in that way to make sure that every student sees themselves as the picture of success and that the possibilities to the destination that they choose are endless and supported in ways that traditional education has not done. But with universal design for learning and anti-racism, we are intentional and putting all efforts knowing that this must be done. No option. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Inclusion often gets characterized as like a one-size-fits-all solution. And I've also heard UDL, and it's mostly just from people who don't understand what it means. And I love how you talk about the three aspects of UDL. How do you respond to this critique? Inclusion cannot be one-size-fits-all. And neither can universal design for learning because part of universal design for learning is being very crystal clear about what the goals are. And so mm. once we are clear on what the goals are for the learning, the second step is to really be honest and diligent to study and research what the barriers are. What are the barriers? The barriers cannot be one size fits all because we have variability in our classrooms, which is our strength. And so the barriers to learning for one student may be different from others. There are some that may be overlap. But once we get smart about the barriers together as a learning community, then we begin that process of designing, which keeps in mind the individual barriers the students are experiencing. But here's the part that I think people either misunderstand or misrepresent. Learners get to make the choices. They get to make the choices. And so in that, we have to, the more we learn about the barriers, the more our design 
is informed to eliminate those barriers. And as we eliminate those barriers, students are free to make choices about how they take in information, make choices about how they show what they know, and even make choices about what they use as supports on their learning journey. This is the part that makes it individual, that is not one size fits all. Um, of course, the more we learn about the barriers, the more options that we have to have available, the more options we have available, we don't prescribe. It's not like medicine. We don't say, hey, here's your barrier. I have engineered a full set of solutions for you. No, every learner gets to say, hey, there's a some strategies that I would like to try. And even if there's a strategy that I may have in mind, because honestly, there's like, oh, I think this would be good for this one. Even if there's one that I have in mind that the student does not choose, they have a freedom to try different strategies, to try different supports to try different seats in the room, always through the lens of, did it bring about the outcome that you were hoping for? What would you like to do differently? And what have you learned about yourself as a learner? Again, that is always individual. What do you learn about yourself as a learner? How can we put that into play? Are there strategies that meet your needs? Are there barriers still in the way? This process never ends. We mm. constantly learn and we grow as a community, again, it's not the teacher learns about the student and then makes it happen for the student, but we're a community of learners where I'm learning about my instruction. You're learning about yourself as an instructor for yourself and along with me. Is my teaching meeting your needs? Is the curriculum bending towards you? Is there a disconnect? Is it culture? Is it background? Is it support? Is it strategy? These questions become second nature in a universally designed learning environment where support is normalized and not villainized. Everybody takes the space they need to be well. This is inclusion in the most powerful way. I don't have to come into the room and announce, I cannot hear well. Please turn on the closed captions. Universal Design says there are some predictable things that people will need. So I'm going to use closed captions. I'm going to use pictures. I'm going to use stories. I'll use words. I'm going to use experiences. You may be able to stand up while I'm talking, or you may need a chair that rolls. There are a number of decisions that you can make for yourself. Why? Because I trust you to be the expert on you. And in those areas where you don't have language to articulate, or maybe you don't know what it is that you need, this is where we enter into partnership and we grow together until you have answers for you that show up in your outcomes. Mm -hmm. The outcomes mm -hmm. tell us if we're growing together as a community, this is honor in action. Uh, so this I, I can imagine someone listening to this conversation and be like, you know, this sounds great for middle school or high school, <laughs> but what about, you know, in elementary school and these kids don't know what they want, you know, uh, they may choose the wrong kind of uh, support or, mm -hmm. you know, like going back to what you said about before, what if they take advantage and, and so help. Help an educate talk down an educator who may be thinking those things right now. Assuming that students don't know what they want is assuming that students are not human. Mm. I have seen um, preschoolers articulate with pictures and words whether they've met the learning outcome, whether they would like some more help, or whether they um, have no idea what you're talking about, and they're able to share the level of mastery that they've experienced. Um, there are learners, no matter what the age, learners 
we can structure our classroom in a way that gives learners an opportunity to try different strategies, to learn more about what they want and what they need, and to be able to articulate that. And so if those early learning years are all about um, executive functioning, meaning that they learn how to make a plan, use a strategy, and evaluate the outcome, that empowers them in the higher grades to know how to organize information, how to advocate for themselves to say, I don't know, or I don't understand. We create these communities where it's safe to not be perfect, where it's safe to need something different than the person next to you, where it's safe to try something and say, this works for me or this doesn't work for me. And this is what we're building. This is what expert learning is. And so if we are doing the cognitive heavy lifting, as Zaretta Hammond says in her book, the cognitive heavy lifting at those early grades, then we never give learners space to make decisions for themselves. We actually disrespect them into compliance to say, I decide what is best for you. I decide what you want. I decide what you need. We can hear it in this conversation where it sounds like power, but we give ourselves a pass when we make those decisions for our early learners in those spaces and say, they don't know what they want. Mm-hmm. Have you tried? And so I would ask every educator to think about those areas where you've decided for or about someone else without giving them a chance to decide for themselves. Uh, there is a a podcast that I listen to from time to times, and it is from... um. Uh, There was a young man, his name was Nathan, and he said, nothing about us without us. And that has been a mantra that has stuck with me. And so when you are tempted to make decisions for and about the students, I will ask you to just uh, cue up my voice, cue up the (laughs) voice of Nathan. Take this moment to say nothing about my learners without my learners. Give them a chance to decide for themselves. Give them a chance to try. How are we refining failure? If this is a strategy that doesn't work for you or you chose it because the person next to you likes it, look at the outcome. Did that work well for you? How would you like to try something different? And this is the time in that pre-K through two where students can explore and try, but also have the space to have those conversations or those moments of reflection to see what works for me. What brings about my success? Am I proud of how I've moved through this? Is there something that I'm not proud of? And how can I fix it? Even if there's not language, if there's pictures, if there's uh, words, if there's um, a happy face or an emoji that can communicate, here's where I am with this. Here's the skill I'm trying to build. This is what I know. This is what I don't know. How do we build that bridge together with them? Not just for them, not just about them but with them. That's important. I'm just going to let that sit for a minute. Uh, so I want to talk about equity. Mm-hmm. Um, and I want to talk about equality. And I want to know your thoughts about the difference between those two words and educational systems. Because uh, sometimes the conversation goes, well, you know, I believe in equity of opportunity, but I don't know about equity of outcomes. I don't, you know, it, I've heard that before. You probably have to, um, you know, and how does equality fit in 
to this equation if it does at all. So is is there a place for both of these terms or how should we be thinking about this? Uh, I'm, I'm so glad that we're talking about this today. And uh, Katanji Brown, uh, Supreme Court Justice Brown has a quote and she said that no one benefits from ignorance. Um, she was talking about this country and the work that has been done in the past and the present experiences um, that have been disrupted with this decision on affirmative action. I bring that up to say that when I think about the school context, um, higher education, um, K through 12, preschools, we know that there has been a dichotomous experience for learners of color in a number of ways for learners with disabilities. Um, and I highlight those because this is fresh on my mind um, most of the time, but particularly mm-hmm. today. When we think about this word equality, um, what stands out for me is that I have two children, ages 16 and 15 right now, and there have been moments equality was what I was seeking. Just view my children as humans. Just give them the education that they deserve. And in that sense, every human being deserves to be seen as a human to be respected, to have the space to have different emotions, to have um, the space to be happy and joyful, even in learning and in spaces and in school. I wish that my children did not have to be fierce advocates for their education, even as early as three and four years old, that they had to learn to fight for the equality that should have been afforded to them. But that is our reality. When I think of equality, I think about what every human life deserves, dignity, respect, honor. When I think about equity, equity means that there is a mutual acknowledgement of the barriers that are keeping me from getting to my best. And when there's a mutual agreement on what those barriers are, then there is also a mutual agreement to begin to demolish those barriers, to tear those down so that my goal and the goal that you have as you see it with me is met. There is a mutuality in equity. And so um, equity means that systems and individuals see their roles and that we fight for that equality in humanity that I just spoke of before. And so when we think about equity, it shows up in different ways because the barriers will be different um, for each of us, for every person. When there is equity, there is agreement between systems and individuals, particularly in the educational context for the learners that we serve, that we will be diligent to hear and believe the barriers that we will be diligent to listen to and believe the data and the outcomes and that the road from where every learner is to where they want to be and they should be, that we work together with mutuality and respect to break down those barriers, whatever they may be in every system, in every classroom. And I love that uh, there's an organization cast that started the um, Universal Design for Learning Guidelines. Their tagline is, until learning has no limits. And I love that, until learning has no limits. 
equity has to be our focus. Are you ready for the mystery question? After a short break, Andra Tisha and I answer a very strange question. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. So the mystery Ready. question is, oh, I just did that one. So I get to pick another one. I guess I should take out the ones I already did. It, if you decide to get cremated, where would you want your ashes spread? That's I oh, didn't make it up. I know that I will not decide to be cremated. So I just want to let my family know if you're listening, <laughs> don't you dare don't do, it. Don't, don't do it. Don't you do it. <laughs> but if, you know, in the spirit of the question, if I was, I would want my ashes um, sprinkled. Oh, goodness. And beautiful Lake Erie. So Cleveland could uh, feel me and experience me over and over again. I'm a Cleveland girl. Okay. Um, and so um, shout out to Bone Thugs and Harmony. They just <laughs> changed 99th and St. Clair to Bone Thugs and Harmony way to Bone Thugs. And so, um, uh, yep. So Lake Erie, so that Cleveland could could benefit from my spirit over and over and over again. Lake I love Cleveland City. Wow. I love uh, where I'm from. We are lifers here in Cleveland. My husband's family is here. Um, and so... Uh, we have a long legacy. My great grandmother migrated from Bessemer, Alabama, in 1924. And when I tell you we put down roots here in Cleveland, um, I I love this place. I always want to see it grow and change. And I know that Cleveland sometimes gets a bad rep, but I would encourage anyone to come and visit and see the changes in the way that the city is growing and changing. So, shout out to Mayor Bibb. Fantastic leadership there. Lots of changes coming. 
um, lots of innovation and education. And so um, the best is yet to come. Oh, wow. That's that's What about you? What about me? Gosh, gosh. Uh, Well, you know, I was thinking about this just, you know, as you're as you were talking um, and uh, it's going to sound really cliche because I'm wearing my Dodger cap. But you know what? Might as well just go Let's for go. it because yeah. You know, so uh, I'm originally from Southern California. Um, I grew up in um, the Arcadia, Pasadena, San Gabriel Valley area. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I I can s- still consider it my home, even though I don't live there. We we try to go back every year, but uh, listen, just sprinkle me a Dodger Stadium. That's what I'm saying. Chavez That's Ravine. Right. You yes. know what I mean? Just sprinkle me all around. And, you know, as long as the Dodgers are there, maybe I'll be like experiencing, you know, <laughs> just be at the ballpark every day. You know what I mean? Yes. Yes. Home. 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 Exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah. Uh, L.A. certainly priced us out, but we are um, we have a lot of roots there. Um, my my dad still lives in L.A. Actually, both my parents still live in L.A. County. L.A. County is huge. So it's like, mm-hmm. you know, from mountain to the ocean. Um, so we try to get back there and, uh, and visit. It's always home, but you know, Atlanta is, is where our family is and where we're raising our kids. And it was definitely the best decision, but listen, you don't put my ashes around, uh, the brave stadium. Sorry, y'all <laughs> Dodgers all the way. Okay. First you heard it here. Okay. <laughs> all right. Listen, all right. I don't have it written down, but it's, it's all in audio, so I can't take it back. Andra Tesha Fitzgerald, thank you so much for being on the Think Inclusive podcast. We appreciate your time. Thank you so much, Tim, for having me. And I hope all the listeners remember that allyship requires action. So get in the fight. That chime means it's free time. And this week, I have Carolyn Teagland, CEO of the Maryland Coalition for Inclusive Education. I caught Carolyn after a week of working with one of our amazing partner school districts. Here's our conversation. Hey, Carolyn, how are you? Hey, Tim, I'm good. How are you? So I had this kind of burning question on my brain, and I've been thinking about it a lot, and so I wanted to run it by you. We're in a strange educational climate right? Uh, yes. With, with our partners, the, the, you know, the districts and the schools that we work with, but also just all across the country. If you're paying attention to the news and education news, there's a lot of talk about what you can and cannot say, you know, specific words. And I'm just wondering how, as people who are working in school districts and uh, school districts that want to be more inclusive, like how do we navigate not saying certain words like equity or inclusion or diversity. How do we do our work without using these words? Well, that's an interesting question. And what I'm finding, because we are all over the place now, as you know, Tim, we're not just in Maryland. And Maryland tends to be a little more liberal in terms of the ability to use certain words, but not everywhere. Mm -hmm. Um, But what I personally am finding is that when I am going to be speaking to a new audience, I always ask the question of district leadership. 
are there certain words or phrases that are going to cause people to shut down and not be able to hear the message? Because for me, while I don't agree with the idea of trying to mask certain words that mean, mean real things, like mm -hmm. equity is a real thing, diversity <laughs> is a real thing, um, disability is a real thing, but if we can't get the message to the audience because they can't hear it, then we're stalled in our ability to get anywhere with the district or school or whomever it is that we're speaking with. So I think that there is a balance between knowing your audience and avoiding certain words until you develop that sense of stability and trust, where then maybe you can begin to introduce words that cause division. But if we want to have a seat at the table, we have to know who our audience is and how to get that seat and be able to remain in that seat. Because if we do something in a situation that causes us to not be invited back, then the work in that space is not going to happen, or at least we're not going to be given the opportunity to make that work happen. So I have an aversion to being told that I can't say certain words because they're not politically correct in that environment. I do think we have an obligation if we want to get this work to advance, particularly in places where there's reticence to acknowledge the fact that there are marginalized groups. Uh, we're doing a disservice to the people that we're there to support. And honestly, the marginalized groups in that space. You're right that you develop a relationship with whoever it is, whatever, if it's an educator or if it's a uh, district administrator, and there's a level of, of trust that needs to be established before we get into hard conversations. And I can imagine a scenario where officially things are not written out with certain terminology, but in conversation, which is a lot of what our work is anyways, is just having conversations with people. Those words and the explanations of those words are part of that conversation. Right. So it's, it's being able to read your audience and to know when you've established the level of trust, trust that allows you to be able to be more forthright. You know, I talk about, we talk about, not just I, we as an organization talk about children who are educated in separate settings. And when I become comfortable in a space, I use the word segregation because that is what it is. But that's not always the first Depending on the relationship that I have with folks, I don't necessarily go to that description of what we're doing when we isolate children away from their age-appropriate peers to educate them. It is segregation, but that is a word that causes people to have a reaction. And sometimes we use it because we want to get that reaction. We want to highlight what it really is, but we have to be, be careful that we're not using words that then cause us to um, create a negative reaction that stalls or even stops our ability to further the work and the conversation with folks. Anything else on your mind? There's a young girl in one of the districts that I'm in that, that um, she was in a segregated setting from the time that she was in preschool until this school year when she was in fifth grade. And it was all because her IQ score showed 49 a full-scale score of 49. She comes from generational poverty. She's a Black girl who does not use the same language that we would use. She doesn't have the same life experiences that we have. And the more you get to know her, you know that 49 is not an accurate IQ score for her. Mm 
but she was being measured based on a, an assessment that largely is biased against how she was raised and how she was spoken to and the language that she uses. And so decisions were made about her educational journey that segregated her all because of that number. And then when she became included, all of a sudden there's all this confidence that no one knew was there because all of a sudden she's actually being asked to do real math. I mean, it's really amazing. Crazy. Amazing. Yeah. It's just amazing. <laughs> oh, and man. what's interesting is when the educators see it and then they're able to acknowledge, maybe I shouldn't be putting so much weight into these IQ scores. That's a huge for educators. We rely so much on those intelligence tests and especially right. the special ed. So what do you think? What are your strategies for talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion in places where those particular terms are being suppressed? Send me an email and let me know what you think. You can reach me at T-V-I-L-L-E-G-A-S at M-C-I-E dot org. For more information about inclusive education or to learn how you can partner with us in your school or district, visit mcie.org. Thanks again to our incredible sponsor, Changing Perspectives. Love Think Inclusive? Here are a few ways to let us know. Rate us on Spotify or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Become a patron for extra stuff. This week, I'm posting about six minutes of extra audio from my interview with Andra Tisha. We talk about the recent firing of a Georgia educator for reading a picture book. Don't miss it. Speaking of patrons, thank you to Carol Q, Aaron P, Jarrett T, Joyner A, Kathy B, Mark C, Gabby M, and Kathleen T. We appreciate your continued support of Think Inclusive. Think Inclusive is written, edited, designed, mixed, and mastered by me, Tim Viegas. Original music by Miles Kredich. Additional music from Melody. Thanks for your time and attention. And remember, inclusion always works. is a senior and she's taking an AP research class. Um, and so her research project is on banned books. Interesting. Yeah. And, and the only, like the only reason why that is her research projects is because of what's been happening. Exactly. My daughter, um, a group of students from my daughter's high school spoke out at a recent board of education meeting in my district. She helped write one of the speeches. She was very concerned about this whole notion of banning books and what that does to people who are represented in those books or the characters represent, you know, some of her friends and how concerning that is to her. Yeah. Yeah. From MCIE.